the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Proft Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. Dr. Tedros said uh, just three days ago, in light of evolving evidence, WHO advises that government should encourage the general public to wear masks where there is widespread transmission and physical distancing is difficult, such as public transport in shops or in other confined or crowded environments. Three days later, Dr. Maria Van Kirkhoff, who is the head of WHO's Emerging Diseases Unit, from the data we have, it still seems to be rare that an asymptomatic person actually transmits onward to a secondary individual. Very rare. Asymptomatic coronavirus patients, for the most part, aren't spreading new infections. Very rare. It's not to say that it's zero because there's no such thing as zero risk in this world. But uh, going back to maybe what we should have done at the outset, to contemplate the trade-offs, Carol Markowitz writing in the New York Post, the kids are not all right. The isolation and loneliness of the COVID-19 lockdown hasn't been good for any of us. Uh, we're on the edge, angry at one another, but it's even worse for the kids. More than two weeks ago, CDC announced, unlike previously thought, the coronavirus doesn't actually spread easily from surfaces, yet playgrounds remain closed. It's June and public pools are closed in many states, despite the fact that CDC experts say Chlorinated water kills the virus. A Save the Children survey of 6,000 children in a number of COVID-19 affected countries found almost one in four children living under COVID-19 lockdowns, social restrictions, and school closures are dealing with feelings of anxiety, with many at risk of lasting psychological distress, including depression, and up to two-thirds struggling with boredom and feelings of isolation. For what? For more on this... On uh, the updated science and whether the men of women in science, as they advertise themselves in public offices in the Western world, will take judicial notice of this WHO declaration. We're pleased to be joined by Dr. John Lee, retired professor of pathology and NHS consultant pathologist, National Health Service in Britain. Dr. Lee, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, what about uh, the uh, WHO declaration about uh, asymptomatic patients? Very rare are they transmitting the virus. Yes, well, that's interesting, isn't it? I, I think, uh, I mean, as you say, if, if that's true, uh, you know, it puts another nail in the coffin of, of lockdown, really. Um, I think lockdown has been a pretty evidence-free policy from the beginning. It's been based on, you know, a, a dramatic society-wide application of the precautionary principle, um, and to my mind, it really shows that, you know, better safe than sorry isn't true unless you have a pretty good handle on what you mean by safe and what you mean by sorry. Uh, you talk about the asymmetri- uh, asymmetries with respect to the response in uh, the most recent piece at The Spectator. 
uh, go through those for go through those for us, please. Well, yes. The the um, it, I think the trouble is when you introduce a policy as as dramatic and as far reaching and as and as damaging, I think, uh, as lockdown. Um, you know, it's going to be it's going to be difficult to reverse that for politicians and scientists who've been involved in making those decisions because um, the, the, there are asymmetries in the sense that. Uh, you know, when you when you make a decision like this on the basis of really pretty weak evidence initially, um, to turn it round, you're going to you're going to need pretty strong evidence so that everybody doesn't turn around and blame you for you know anything that happens afterwards. I think it's the it's sort of the chicken licking uh, mode of politics, really, isn't it? It's once you've decided that the sky's falling, um, it takes quite a lot to convince you that it isn't. So um, I think we're in that situation at the moment. I think we've. Yeah, the politicians and a certain group of scientists have convinced themselves that the, science, that the sky was falling on this. Uh, they've convinced quite a lot of the public on it. Um, and to reverse that somehow takes a lot of negative evidence. Um, and I think that's, that's one, of the, one of the troubles that, we, that we're, we're facing at the moment. And what's your, I mean, there's a lot of speculation about uh, second wave this fall. What's your best, uh, best estimate about uh, what a second wave will, will look like? Well, of course, of course, none of us know for sure. I mean, that's the trouble. None of us know for sure about this. But the, the assumptions of a huge first wave were based on certain modeling assumptions and certain ideas about the way that these diseases behave. And to be honest, we don't know enough about them. Um, I mean, we know quite a lot about the way viruses infect cells and the way they work in, in organisms. But the thing is, what we don't know is how they really work on the big global scale of passing between people. And there are lots and lots of variables involved in that, most of which, you know, in terms of the actual public spread of a virus we don't have much handle on. Um, my take on it is that, well, so for example, what are the assumptions uh, that, that, that underlies the idea that there's going to be a big second wave is the idea that because this is a new virus, we're all super susceptible to it. And by locking down, we've sort of hidden ourselves from the virus. And so when we come out of lockdown, we're going to be seeing it again. But in fact, there's new evidence that shows that many of us, maybe up to half of us, um, already have uh, immune mechanisms in our body that that recognize this virus because it's not that different from other coronaviruses that have been out there that have come every year in common cold. So the fact is, if that's true, um, it completely rewrites the, the whole idea of how many people would have got this in the first place and how many uh, people are likely to get it coming out of lockdown. So if that's true, I mean, really, the estimation of a likelihood of a serious second wave really goes right down the agenda. I mean, I think we're, we're going to see outbreaks of this virus. We're going to see people catching it because it's now out in the world. Um, Pandora's box has been opened. But I think the, the justification for, for prolonging lockdown on the basis of really uncertain ideas about whether or not we're likely to have a, a second wave, which I, I personally think is quite unlikely, I think it's well beyond its sell-by date now, the lockdown policy. Yeah, and also, I mean, again, real-world data to inform the modelers. Uh, we've had uh, two dozen states now just about who have been open since the first week of May uh, to varying degrees and opening throughout the course of the last uh, three and a half weeks as well. And uh, we've seen no increase in uh, hospitalizations, uh, ICU, case fatality rate. That just hasn't happened uh, like uh, some predicted it would. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think the trouble with it is people have put too much weight on models because because we don't know how uh, this virus is actually going to behave. People have tried to use um, epidemiological modeling as a sort of crystal ball. But the thing is, epidemiological modeling isn't a crystal ball. It's been sort of colossally wrong repeatedly in the past. And the reason really is, is because when they do the models, they, we don't have all the data and we don't, and the, some of the assumptions are wrong. 
So the thing about models is they can be quite good scientifically for informing scientists about you know what we know, what we don't know, what we might look into in more detail. But they're really not great for informing public policy because they're, they're too well, they're too imperfect. Really, they're too imperfectly actually model the way the world is. So I think uh, I think that's the trouble. We, we we're relying, and politicians are looking for certainty in something that can't give certainty. But when you actually look out there in the real world, as you as you say, um, the real world doesn't seem to be behaving the way that the modelers would like it to be. And that really says to me that the models, uh, you know, leave quite a lot to be desired. And you know, as I think I've mentioned on here before, one of the key uh, principles of medicine is that you should, when you're introducing a cure for anything, you should first do no harm. So the fact is, you don't just leap in and, and uh, you know do an operation on somebody without knowing it's going to be better for them uh, than than not. So lockdown is a major treatment in a way, treatment for this virus, and we didn't even know that it worked. We certainly do know that it does a great deal of harm. So I think the equation, really right from the beginning, has been. Uh, the onus of burden of proof should be on those actually wanting us to live this way. But now I think it's well well balanced in the direction that we need to get back to normal life and that really the sky is not falling. One estimate of the consequences of unemployment, missed doctor's visits, other factors during the two-month lockdown will lead to so many extra deaths that Americans will lose a cumulative 1.5 million years of life, nearly twice the total cost so far of COVID-19 deaths. I mean, I think that's right. You see, if you do one way of uh, one way of assessing deaths is uh, um, to look at what's called qualies, which is quality of life years lost. So, you know, if you're, um, you know, given that the average, you know, median life expectancy is about 82 in our societies, you know, say if you're 81 um, and you catch a disease sadly and you die, you've maybe lost one quality of life year if, if indeed you had a good quality of life. But if you're, you know, if you're 40, say, and, um, you know, you, you catch a disease of, of any type and you die, in theory, you've lost 42 quality of life years. But, of course, if you're 40 and you're now depressed because of the, you know, the lockdown and you can't really do your job properly, you know, that's, when you live a year, that's not a full quality of life year, maybe only half a year. So in terms of the number of quality of life years lost by younger people in this epidemic because of the lockdown, I think that's going to greatly outweigh the number of um, you know, quality of life years lost because of the virus itself. And again, that's a calculation that wasn't even thought of. It wasn't mentioned. It wasn't considered before we entered into lockdown. And you know, when we do anything radical like this, we really ought to have a proper risk versus benefit assessment before we do it and before we prolong it and before we carry on with it, rather than just leaping into something, only looking at one axis, you know, virus, 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 only looking at that axis and not considering anything else. That isn't, you know, it's good, not good science, it's not good medicine, it's not good politics. He is Dr. John Lee, a retired professor of pathology and National Health Service consultant pathologist across the pond in the UK. Dr. Lee, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Listen to podcasts of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, yesterday, President Trump gathered uh, representatives from law enforcement from across the nation together for a conversation about uh, the last week of rioting and protests, as well as a conversation about uh, police tactics. Uh, Trump saying uh, this of the uh, movement afoot in places like Minneapolis to uh, 
disband, dismantle, reimagine police? There won't be defunding. There won't be uh, dismantling of our police. And uh, there's not going to be any disbanding of our police. Our police have been letting us uh, live in peace. And we want to make sure we don't have any bad actors in there. And sometimes you'll see some horrible things like we witnessed recently. But uh, 99, I say 99.9, but let's go with 99 percent of them are great, great people. Well, I mean, uh, that may be the president's posture, but uh, there's only so much control the federal government exercises over local units of government, like, say, the city of Minneapolis. So I think you're going to see some some examples of uh, what he said won't happen actually come to pass. Uh, interestingly, uh, part one of the uh, representatives of law enforcement at the confab yesterday with the president was Tony Childress, who's the sheriff of Livingston County, Illinois. Uh, my home state, a black gentleman uh, should be mentioned just in the age of uh, having to use racial identifiers as part of these conversations to understand who has standing and who doesn't, I suppose. Professor, uh, excuse me, Professor, he sounds like a professor, actually, but Sheriff Childress uh, had this to say about the approach that he takes in Livingston County, Illinois. Uh, Tony Childress is my name, and I am the sheriff of Livingston County. Uh, which is the fourth largest county in the state of Illinois. We're 90 miles south of Chicago. Um, I call it rural central Illinois, and we have an ideology that I feel and many others feel works very well. And that ideology is being a friend of the community, supporting the community with programs like shopping with the sheriff, like Halloween with the children, um, always being there as a listening ear for the community and working with the community. And, Mr. President, we are happy to sit down with you and to try and do everything we can to make this nation better by keeping the community safe and by working with you and the nation and making a better place. Yeah, and uh, Livingston, Livingston County, uh, as you won't be surprised, being an ex-urban slash rural county, is largely white. No problem having a black sheriff there. No problem with the black sheriff interacting with the community in all of its various colors and backgrounds and dispositions. Interesting. So is Tony Childress and Livingston County more representative of America? Or is a Derek Chauvin and what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis? For more on this, pleased to be joined by Ryan Williams, who's the president and publisher of the Claremont Review of Books, one of my favorite publications, as anybody who listens to this show knows. Uh, Ryan Williams, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me. So uh, the um, uh, you uh, representing the, the Claremont Institute, as well as the chairman, uh, Thomas Klingenstein, uh, issued this missive uh, end of last week, America is not racist, in which you uh, call for a full accounting of how the rioting happened, who made them happen, who let them happen. Those in positions of political authority must be held to account. But uh, before we even get to the political uh, authorities, that uh, first piece of it, which is America is not racist, this seems to be the real divide in terms of starting points between those of the identitarian left, the 1619 Project-oriented, versus um, 
versus those who don't count themselves in that camp who think that America has problems, but uh, racism is not hardwired into our DNA the way that the identitarians argue. Right. Yeah, we wanted to challenge that premise, which really is the premise of all these protests and riots in a way. America was founded in 1776, not 1619. Slavery was with us and was a problem, of course, but in principle, from the beginning of our country, it was slavery was made and institutional racism, such as it was, was made a political problem immediately because our principles stood against it. It took a long time for us to work that problem out uh, and much blood. Uh, much blood was spilled and much treasure was expended, but we've gotten ourselves to a place here in 2020 America where we wanted to also challenge the notion that somehow there's systemic racism. It's just not true. Echoing the president, we argued, you know, there are some abuses going on in large organizations, police included, and there certainly are racists in America, but America isn't racist. In that sense, the, the 1619 Project and the modern identity politics left, they want to transform this country and really destroy our founding principles in our regime because they think it was uh, evil from the beginning in a way. So we just thought that needed to needed to be challenged. I'm a little confused because I hear conflicting messages about uh, the role that white people should play. I, on the one hand, uh, white people should be speaking up more forcefully than ever. On the other hand, to, to condemn racism and to make atonement and so on and so forth. And on the other hand, uh, white people should be silenced because uh, they don't have the shared experience, so they can't intelligently comment on it. That's right. Yeah, well, it's um, you see a lot of on the modern left today and in the identitarian movement. I think you see evidence of um, shifting arguments depending on circumstances. So, I, you know, whatever works seems to be the approach on the left. So I'm not surprised that on the one hand, white people need to take the lead in checking their privilege, et cetera, but they also need to just shut up and listen. Well, and the other uh, matter, too, uh, which uh, we've talked about on the program, but it seems to me it just needs to be rinsed and repeated uh, until there are quality answers provided by those in power, as you mentioned, uh, a full accounting. Uh, the question is, uh, if uh, the argument is that law enforcement is systemically racist, is that, that America is systemically racist, well, then who's in charge of the systems of which you're speaking? And it seems to me if you look at the civic institutions by category in America, they're almost uh, to a institution manned by men and women of the left of all colors. Yeah, it's a great irony. I mean, most of the cities where the protests and riots were were the worst are run by progressive liberals, to say nothing of the fact that progressive has, have really, with some interruptions, of course, but have dominated national politics and state politics a little more scattered for 100 years. And our modern civil rights regime, which starting in the mid-60s, was meant to address the old problems of the Jim Crow South, et cetera, and has done so aggressively to the tune of, of, of trillions of dollars. Um, you know, that, that regime has been dominant for, uh, for 50 years now. So uh, it's, it's a little odd. I, the, it, the lack of self-reflection, maybe it's just willful lack of addressing that problem, uh, I think speaks volumes and, and should be pointed out uh, to Americans uh, so they, they can uh, understand this problem. And understand the, the the way the left plays a part in it. I mean, the, the the principle of the new left, the identity politics left, is there there is no such thing. And in fact, it's white supremacist to think we live under the equal protection of equal laws, regardless of skin color. That's an extraordinary turn uh, for a movement that originally wanted to uh, 
uh, under Martin Luther King Jr. and others wanted to fulfill the prob- promise of uh, equality under the law. He is Ryan Williams, the president and publisher of the Claremont Review of Books. Ryan Williams, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Coming up, we'll talk to John Daniel Davidson from The Federalist about uh, the uh, defund, disband, dismantle the uh, police movement. But uh, before we do, I had to take notice of the performance art led by Nancy Pelosi at Emancipation Hall in D.C. yesterday. Pelosi, along with some leaders from both the House and Senate Democrat Socialist Caucuses, draped with a a Guyanian garb, as I understand it, Kenti fabric, I believe is the pronunciation. Anyway, uh, they did a eight and a half minute kneel down. Uh, as a tribute to George Floyd, uh, solidarity with the protesters, I suppose. Um, Nancy Pelosi calling George Floyd a martyr. I'm not so sure about that. And the uh, Ghana reference and the tribal garb that each one of them wore, the politicians, that is, was a reference to a trip last year that where Nancy Pelosi tagged along with Brotherly Love Spice one of the socialist Spice Girls, her name is Ilhan Omar, went to Ghana uh, on the occasion of uh, 400 years of slavery, and uh, this all connected to the 1619 Project and the anniversary of the first slave that was transported to North America. Nancy Pelosi explaining the performance art before they put on their show. Last summer, a number of us, under the leadership of Karen Bass, went to Ghana to observe the 400th anniversary of the first slaves coming across the Atlantic. That tragedy, that tragedy, that horror of history, and then slavery in our own country, and then all of the consequences of that. We are here to observe that pain. We are here to respect the actions of the American people to speak out against that specifically manifested in police brutality, we are here to honor George Floyd. Uh-huh. So they did, knelt down for eight and a half minutes, and then uh, Nancy Pelosi needed a little bit of an assist getting up. <laughs> Hard to get up. <laughs> it's better not to have on high heels. <laughs> I've fallen, and I can't get up. But uh, the more interesting thing was going back to that, uh, uh, that that garb from tribal Ghana. Oh, and by the way, one aspect not mentioned with uh, the nature of the slave trade in Ghana and enlisting the West, of course, or the West enlisting the Ghanaians, uh, is uh, the Ghanaians' participation in the slave trade. And this is noted by uh, a... Uh, Ghanese historian and a former mayor uh, of a community in Ghana. At the time, he noted that to pursue slavery successfully, you need a highly organized group because somebody has to go out there. Somebody has to locate the victims. Somebody has to lead an army there. Somebody has to capture them, transport them to the selling centers. 
all the time keeping an eye on them to make sure they don't revolt and then sell them and move on. Uh, Europeans weren't going out and capturing Africans. That was uh, the indigenous people that did it. So um, that's, uh, you know, un- obviously a terrible period in world history, but uh, it was Africans who were involved in that as well. That's just worth noting. Additionally, that was the occasion that trip to Ghana where Ilhan Omar compared the slave prisons in Ghana to border detention facilities in the United States. But but to the garb, a friend of the show and uh, the founder of uh, Culture of Life Africa, uh, her name is Obianaju Ikachoa, and she uh, uh, took and she's Nigerian uh, born. She uh, took note of this uh, virtue signaling and the appropriation of the uh, tribal garb and had this to say to the Democrats. I was just looking online today, like most of you, and what did I see? A bunch of Democrat politicians kneeling down, of which I have nothing to say about that because I am not an American. However, they were all having around their necks this colorful fabric which I'm sure they put around their necks as some kind of uh, mark or show of unity or solidarity with black people. So in other words, they are putting forward the canteen material or this colorful fabric they had around their necks as uh, some kind of placating sign or symbol to show that they are not racist and they are together with black people. Excuse me, dear Democrats, in your tokenism, you didn't wait to find out that this thing that you're hanging around your neck is not just some African uniform. It's actually the kente material. The kente belongs to the Ghanaian people, mainly the Ashanti tribe. Excuse me, Democrats, don't treat Africans like we're children. These fabrics and these, you know, colorful things that we have within our culture and tradition, they all mean something to us. Yeah, don't treat us like children. Key key line there. This is damn prop. This is the damn prop show. Welcome back to the damn prop show. This latest hysteria over defunding the police as the means to eliminate police brutality. And uh, here's Minneapolis City Council President Lisa Bender on CNN making the case for what the Minneapolis City Council is poised to do, which is disband the police department. Yes, I mean, I I hear that loud and clear from a lot of my neighbors. And I know, and, and myself too, and I know that that comes from a place of privilege because for those of us for whom the system is working, I think we need to step back and imagine what it would feel like to already live in that reality where calling the police may mean more harm is done. So the fact-free assertion that black people calling the police uh, has some sort of likelihood that the police will do more harm than whatever emergency they're calling the police to address. By the way, what does it say about a black person calling the police in terms of their confidence about a police response to whatever crisis they're dealing with. But this is the mentality that you get in certain quarters in certain big cities. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Daniel Davidson, political editor for The Federalist, contributor to The Wall Street Journal and Texas Monthly, J.D.D. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me. Your, your perspective on the uh, prescriptions coming out of Minneapolis for reimagining law enforcement. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And it's also completely condescending and infantilizing to the minority communities in Minneapolis whose uh, neighborhoods are already under-policed and who stand to lose the most from a decline in policing. So that city councilwoman uh, who you just played uh, is is the the height of infantilization and condescension. Um, The the, the people who rely on police response the most are, are the most vulnerable, and they're the people who are gonna get hurt first when they decrease funding for the police or when they abolish the police uh, and then when they start taking the police off the street. And to, to the irony is that thinking that it's white privilege, uh, you know, to call the police when there's a crisis and that, you know, that your white privilege obligates you to defund the police uh, is itself the height of privilege to think that way to think that these people don't need or want the police because I don't need or want the police. It's crazy, and it's going to blow up in their faces. Uh, Well, you look at Camden, New Jersey, in addition to having uh, the the police and the decision makers removed, one step removed from the local populace, you have the added layer of a surveillance state, if that's the direction you want to go. That's the direction Camden, New Jersey went. And, yes, they found some success in reducing violent crime, and that's all well and good. But um, at the expense of people's uh, civil liberties, arguably, uh, and uh, and I don't think that there's an appreciation for that's the direction that that it could that could go in Minneapolis as well. Also, in in Camden, they hired back almost the entire city police department at a slightly lower rate of pay. So you know, all it accomplished it was a it was a budgetary thing you know right. holding Camden up as some sort of example of how to police a city is is also crazy also i don't know if anyone's been to Camden but it's not a nice place right yes that's clear uh, that's it's clear from the stats even if you haven't been to Camden but uh, i so so you you mentioned the infantilization uh the removal of agency by white leftists uh, uh from black americans and uh, I, I saw this Chiron on CNN this morning, a uh, big, uh, I'm sure, thoughtful discussion they were having. What white people can do, question mark. And it just seems to me that's the premise they start from. And this is a decision that black Americans have to make for themselves. Are you going to let white leftists in positions of influence and political power uh, you know, be, how, be, be the basis on whether you rise or fall in America? I mean, this is the argument that, that King made uh, in uh, where do we go from here? This is the argument that Malcolm X made. This is the argument that people like Shelby Steele are making today. Absolutely. I was going to mention that great comment from Shelby Steele the other day on Fox news. Absolutely right. That the, the left's entire approach to this problem removes agency from black Americans. And the entire approach is what can we do for them? How can we help them? And how can we expiate what we see as our sins. It's very focused on white people and white people's feelings of guilt and what we can do to to atone for our our sins and the sins of our forefathers. Nobody talks about, to Shelby Steele's point, nobody talks about black families or black fathers 
And until you start talking about those things and talking about why the black community is in such dire straits, uh, none of these other things matter. And, and, and you can't really take them seriously. The, the uh, clip you played earlier from uh, the, uh, the, the woman criticizing the Democrats over the use of the Kente clause was, was absolutely right. They're not children, but for too long, for decades, uh, the, the left in America, and especially the Democratic Party, has treated black Americans like they're children. Uh, and that has, to, that has got to be called out, got to be stopped. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that's apart from sort of the ridiculous photo op that Democratic leaders staged. I mean, you can criticize Trump for having a ridiculous photo op in front of a church, but then don't turn around and put on a kente cloth and have stage your own ridiculous photo op practically in the same breath. I guess that's treating us all like children. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, that's what I was going to say is, I mean, sort of that's sort of the left's posture, generally speaking, categorically, which is uh, constituents are our children. And that that's the basis of political power is by keeping them in that uh, that permanent adolescent state. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, yeah, the the infantilization of the entire people. Uh, and, and that's really what you see with these sort of cradle to grave welfare state programs that that Democrats would like to to promulgate if they could. Remember back uh, during the Obama presidency, they had that video, The Life of Julia. The Life of Julia was basically a a vignette of someone who was taken care of by government programs their entire life uh, and relied upon government programs their entire life. And of course, The Life of Julia was supposed to represent all all Americans, uh, but that's essentially what the left proposed for black America in the 1960s, and they've stuck to the script the entire time. And what all they're doing now is calling for more funding for the same kind of welfare programs that have totally failed. He is John Daniel Davidson, political editor at The Federalist, contributor to The Journal and Texas Monthly. John Daniel Davidson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Take care. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, building on the last two segments, uh, Pelosi's performance art and our conversation with John Daniel Davidson about the asininity of the defund, disband, dismantle the police movement. Comes Michelle Obama's commencement address, which is uh, about 17 minutes of sentimental twaddle. Here's how Michelle Obama and Barack, they both have this uh, talent. Every sentence, cliche plus buzzword equals thought. They don't have thoughts. They have lines they recite. And so uh, Michelle Obama reciting her lines to the, the graduates. We see what's happening in stark relief. We see how these inequalities are playing out on our streets. And it's not just the communities most affected by these challenges that see it now. It's folks all across the country who for too long have had the luxury and privilege of looking away. Luxury, privilege, sad, safe. These are the buzzwords of the the lobotomized identitarian, the cant of the identitarian. She uh, continued uh, climbing the ladder through lies, shunning those with less, 
you know. Now, I'm not naive. I, I know that you can climb a long way up the ladder selling falsehoods and blaming others for your own shortcomings, shunning those with less privilege did. and advantage. Less privilege. But that is a heavy way to live. Less privilege. It continues. The chance to leave this world a little better than you found it. Cliché. Don't deprive yourselves of all that. There is no substitute for it. And uh, don't worry, you're never too angry. Boy, I, the, the, the projection I, I love or the dissociation, climbing the ladder through lies and deceptions. You're never too angry, says uh, a woman who was proud of America for the first time in 2008 when her husband was elected president. So don't ever, ever let anyone tell you that you're too angry or that you should keep your mouth shut. There will always be those who want to keep you silent, to have you be seen but not heard. Cliche. Or maybe they don't even want to see you at all. But those people don't know your story. Your and story. if you listen Cliche. to them, then Can't. nothing will ever change. So it's up to you to speak up when you or someone you know isn't being heard. Isn't being heard. Cliche. Buzzword. Combination, actually, of cliche and buzzword. Nice, uh, nice twofer there at the end. This is a Michelle Obama who's still angry with America and wants the high school and college graduates she's addressing to be angry with America, too. This is a bad place with bad people who didn't build anything, have privileges that allow them to ignore people who are not like them because they're fearful of the other. All of these cliches strung together over 17 minutes. It's really a disgraceful address that she gave. Again, the two of them. I mean, I don't know what they learned at their respective Ivy League schools, but it wasn't anything that required intellectual heft unless it was a class in sort of Harold Hill doublespeak, because that's all that was. Do yourself uh, a favor, and uh, if your high school or college grad has not seen the Michelle Obama commencement address, tell them to go ahead and skip it. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow DanProfShow.com, also uh, social media at Dan Prof Show. And uh, we've um, mentioned this before. We talked a little bit about it on last, uh, last night's show with Amaj Ture, Black Guns Matter founder out of Philly. The idea of um, black Americans having agency, uh, charting uh, their independent course and not having their agency stripped of them by white leftists. Uh, we had Maj react to uh, a quote that uh, I pulled from Malcolm X, uh, since we're in a lot of the, the sort of the black power posture and uh, those subscribing to the by any means necessary philosophy, Malcolm X saying the worst enemy that the Negro has, this is a direct quote, the worst enemy that the Negro has is the white man that runs around here drooling at the mouth, professing to love Negroes, and calling himself a liberal. And it's following these white liberals that has perpetuated problems that Negroes have. Uh, Malcolm X calling for black people to solve their own problems in the 60s. Uh, Maj Ture 
echoing that sentiment yesterday. Malcolm, in regards to white liberals, which have proven to be that, all of those Democratic policies are white liberals that have been horrible for the black community. Malcolm was right there, and he was also right about being armed. And you can't just isolate and say, hey, I'm going to be defunding the police and do that for self. But you got to look at all of these things in a do-for-self scenario, just like any other group or any red-blooded American should be thinking about. Uh, the great Shelby Steele uh, was on over the weekend with Brett Baer. And uh, we'll have to have him back on our show, uh, author of White Guilt and uh, many other uh, books and op-eds, great scholar. Uh, he uh, talked about the same thing, agency, uh, saying this. In order to prove that you're not racist, you need to take over the fate of black people and say, go with us. We'll engineer you into the future. We'll engineer you into equality. Life doesn't work like that. We have to engineer ourselves, period. There is no other way. No other way. Uh, he's referencing, again, the white leftists. So uh, Shelby Steele, who's considered a conservative, uh, Maj Ture, who's independent, Malcolm X, uh, generally considered a man of the left, all, all saying the same things over the span of five decades about the need for charting an independent course and uh, demanding the agency that every human being has and should be uh, and which should be respected by other human beings. Shelby Steele also noting that uh, when it comes to some of the generic demands being made, more money for social services, uh, reparations, he's willing to take what Al Sharpton and some others of the left have to say seriously as soon as they take something seriously. I will take that, those uh, things seriously when I also hear from Sharpton and others the argument that we need within the black community to work on the institution of marriage. Our families have fallen to pieces. 75% of all black children are born out of wedlock without a father. I don't care how many social programs you have. You're not going to overcome that. That's where we need to put our, that's what the message, it seems to me, of this tragedy is, is that we as black Americans have to begin to take our fate back into our own hands and, and move it, to stop crying racism. There's a little racism out here, always was and always will be. Why, does, why is that an argument to stop, to not move forward, to not be responsible for your own fate? Um, well, again, it's that, it's, that we live in a wealthy, liberal, bend-over-backwards, deferential nation has, has hurt us in terms of moving out of the 400 years of oppression that we were subjected to. And we're, go- we're never going to get out of it. And you can, you can, again, fix to have the police go to as many sensitivity training classes as, as you want. Uh, it's, it's not going to make, it's not going to read a story to a child at night before he goes to sleep. So he's developing his mind and is getting ready to go to school and be serious about the the academic and, uh, and educational development. And so he can someday compete in the most advanced society in the modern world where one has to be really trained and developed in order to be successful. For more on this, please to be joined again by our friend Brendan O'Neill. He is the editor of Spiked, Spiked Online, 
spike-online.com. Brendan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, you know, I assume you have uh, some similar dynamics uh, in the UK, as Shelby Steele was describing in America, with uh, with race and uh, uh, and 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 you know, again, the perceptions of who is uh, owed an apology to whom, or any are any apologies owed whatsoever. And this is sort of what Shelby Steele is getting to in terms of some inward looking within uh, within the black community in this country. Yeah, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter has now well and truly come to the UK. Uh, We've had huge protests over the past few days, a few scuffles as well. And um, a statue of a slave trader has been torn down in Bristol and thrown in a river. And now lots of other statues are being targeted as well. Um, So it's here and it's, it's all over our politics. And I think it's a deeply, deeply worrying movement and a deeply worrying ideology. I don't see Black Lives Matter as an anti-racist movement. On the contrary, I see it as a movement which is crystallizing new forms of racial thinking. And, and what it presents us with is really just this, this binary moralism between, on the one hand, black victimhood, and on the other hand, white privilege. And all that we are expected to do is play our part in that um, racial narrative. So, so black people must perform the role of victim all the time, blame history or structures or capitalism for everything that goes wrong in their lives. And white people, all we have to do is, is just self-flagellate and confess to our privilege and take part in, in you know, self-debasing forms of uh, penance in public, which is what a lot of white people on these demonstrations are doing. It's very fatalistic. It's very backward. And I think genuine anti-racists, people who believe in liberty and equality, which I do, really should stand up to it. Well, I, I agree with you. And, it, and um, something else that Shelby Steele wrote uh, long ago, you know, that uh, goes sort of unappreciated, which is that for the, the white leftist, and that's who re- really we're talking about here. I mean, let's just be honest. Uh, it was never about uh, black people's problems. It was never about uh, uplifting people of color. It's about their self-esteem. They're not they're interested in their self-esteem. They're not interested in minority accomplishment. And that's the disconnect. And and you see it play out over, you know, in this country, over 50 years of policies by those in charge saying the policies were to advance the interests of these constituents who had been legitimately oppressed in this country by law for some time. And yet the results uh, five decades later are catastrophic. Absolutely. Very, it's a similar dynamic here. And I would go so far as to say that these you know, predominantly white leftists actually have a vested interest in ensuring that minority groups don't progress too far. Now, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. I'm not saying they wake up in the morning and say to themselves, how, how can we prevent black people or South Asian people or other minority groups in the UK from advancing? But they recognize, I think, at some instinctive level, that their politics, their self-esteem, their depiction of themselves as these virtuous, wonderful people who are so caring and are so concerned about structural racism and the history of oppression, they recognize that that narrative depends upon uh, the, the keeping certain groups down, presenting certain groups as feeble, as weak, as constantly uh, battered by the forces of history or the forces of modernity. And so they, they have an interest in, in, in repeating this 
pantomime that they've created, this pantomime of uh, the weak black person and this pantomime of the caring white liberal who will help them and assist them and give them love and virtue, but never really want to see them progress to the level of equality that others of us, that the rest of us are really interested in seeing people achieve. So there's a, they, they don't care in a genuine way about minority groups and actually they would prefer if they continue to play their allotted role in the drama that has been drafted by white liberals. Uh, when we come back, I want to get you your reaction to um, a proposal being advanced by a uh, successful black entrepreneur. He's the CEO of a big real estate brokerage, Compass. Uh, Robert Rufkin is his name. Uh, maybe this is actually something constructive that's been advanced against so much uh, that is destructive, both physically and rhetorically, in the last couple of weeks. More with Brendan O'Neill, the editor of Spiked, spike-online.com, right up podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And um, on CNBC yesterday, Compass CEO Robert Rufkin, uh, who's an African-American gentleman, uh, he announced uh, and uh, detailed uh, what he is doing to try to extend opportunity to black professionals in his sector. Uh, listen to what uh, Mr. Rufkin, Rufkin had to say. Well, I think much of the civil unrest that we're seeing right now is a result of economic inequality. And we can't expect companies just to be uh, forward thinking and, and, and improve the way things are working right now out of the goodness of their hearts. But we can expect them to do that if their customers ask. So at Compass, we work with advisors like bankers, lawyers, accountants, consultants, and we're their customers. So we're making a commitment that every one of our advisors have to have black professionals on the teams that are directly advising us. Secondly, we're asking our customers to have an impact. Specifically, our customers are real estate agents. They're all small business owners. They generate $90 billion of commissions a year, and they direct $15 billion of spend to other small business owners, photographers, videographers, real estate attorneys, contractors, stagers, inspectors. And with 15% of the country being, the, being black America, we're encouraging them to spend 15% of their spend on black professionals. Hmm. That 15% of 15 billion would be over $2 billion to the community, and that would have an impact. Mm-hmm. I'm all for private initiative. I'm not uh, 100% uh, on board with the the rationale behind that specific proposal, but something, uh, a couple of other things that Mr. Refkin said that are noteworthy, I'm much more enthusiastic about. And look, there aren't enough black entrepreneurs in the country, and we need more of them, and we also need more investors investing in black entrepreneurs. But for me, when I look at the most successful black people in corporate America, I see two commonalities. One, they had access to great education. Education and two, they had sponsors, not just mentors, sponsors, people that use their own political and social capital to help somebody else succeed. I've had over 20 sponsors in my life, and without any one of them, I wouldn't be where I am right now. And that's why I founded uh, a charter school in the Bronx for education 
in a nonprofit called America Needs You, which helps students who are first in their families to go to college and below the poverty line, giving them career development, college support, and two summer internships. Uh, we're joined now to dissect that a bit and uh, continue our conversation. Brendan O'Neill, editor of Spiked, spike-online.com. And Brendan, um, it, what uh, Robert Rufkin had to say, you know, I, I, I don't like getting into this game of if we're representative of X percentage of the population, we deserve X percent of the pie or or private initiative should give us X percent of, of uh, the the income generated because it's uh, it's a guarantee, but it's also somewhat limiting. You know, it's 15 percent and no more. Once we have 15 percent, we can wipe our hands and we're done with it. So I don't like that. But I do like what he had to say. And he's a product of it. Good education, good education and mentorships in in your space. And boy, that goes a long way, no matter what your color is. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. Um, I'm, I'm always made slightly uncomfortable by the uh, by ideas of affirmative action. I know affirmative action is is different in the U.S. than it is in the U.K., but it, it, that makes me slightly uncomfortable because I think it, it, it accidentally feeds into a narrative of certain groups um, always, assist, always needing a leg up, always needing assistance and, and possibly not being able to do things off their own initiative. So I think it sometimes feeds a rather fatalistic worldview. But I completely agree about the importance of education, the importance of community and community aspiration and the importance of mentoring young people and aspiring people who want to do well. That is so absolutely crucial to all of these problems. I also agree that economic inequality is a key aspect in a lot of this stuff. And the, the British experience is very interesting because some of our immigrant communities have done incredibly well and others have not. So, for example, our Indian community is in, incredibly well integrated, very successful. This country is now pretty much run by people from Indian heritage backgrounds. Three of the highest offices of state are occupied by people from Indian heritage. Um, Nigerians are doing incredibly well in the UK. I, the Irish, from which I come, I'm a, I'm a first-generation Briton, um, we're doing well, we're well-integrated, but then Afro-Caribbeans and others are doing less well. And there is a cultural dynamic in relation to that. There's a community dynamic, and they do face certain barriers. And I think the best way to ensure that all members of society have similar aspirations and similar opportunities is really to change the cultural outlook, to, to stop saying to them, you're beaten up by society, everyone is against you, life is awful, and start saying, get, to, get it together, we'll mentor you, we'll help you, and have some aspirations and have some ambition. I don't think we can underestimate how important that kind of approach might be. And is the difference uh, in, uh, in the UK among those different populations you, you just ticked through, is, that, is it uh, largely education or educational opportunity or educational attainment? Education is a key part of it. Um, the Indian community here is incredibly invested in the education of their children right. um, to an extraordinary degree, more so than uh, the white working classes. At the moment in the UK, white working class boys are less likely than any other group to go to university. So there's problems across society, but education is a key part. Social capital, family networks, community networks, all of those things really combine to give someone a good opportunity in life. And when those things fall apart, when there's not much family base, when the communities are weak, when education is not seen as a good force, that's when problems arise for certain communities. And uh, before we uh, let you go, I wanted to uh, reference a piece that you wrote at spike-online.com. 
uh, about uh, the uh, lockdown breakers in the UK, uh, much like their social distancing breakers here, and the uh, really uh, interesting arguments that were made in their defense of not abiding the strictures, whether lockdown or social distancing. So I, I guess the good news out of some of the uh, protesting, um, and the protesting is fine, the writing not so much, but the good news out of the uh, and the unintended uh, benefit out of the uh, the protesting is uh, uh, the, uh, the the protesters expose the uh, folly of the lockdowns and the social distancing. And now we can all get on with our lives, at least past COVID-19. That's right. You know, the, the double standards have been absolutely staggering. I almost can't believe it because the left in the UK, like the left in America, was at the forefront of insisting we had a lockdown and, and at the forefront of, of attacking anyone who broke the lockdown. So in America, if you know people from the conservative wing of politics dared to protest against lockdown, they were told that they were going to kill old people, they mm-hmm. were murderers and yeah, so on. Yeah. Similar dynamic in the UK, anyone who protested against lockdown was really shamed and, and denounced. And now the same people who were doing the denouncing are protesting themselves and it's absolutely fine Uh, It's all good. And apparently I've heard public health officials actually say that it's fine to protest for Black Lives Matter because racism is an even bigger virus than coronavirus. So they just make it up as they go along. It is absolutely shameless hypocrisy. But I'm thankful that they are shameless hypocrites because a consequence of their hypocrisy is that lockdown has now pretty much fallen apart in the UK. And when we have thousands of people on the street taking part in a mass public assembly, it becomes increasingly difficult for the government to keep the rest of us under house arrest. So lockdown has faded away. I, I guess La, La Rochefoucauld was right that hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue, at least in this case. <laughs> yeah. uh, Brendan O'Neill, editor of Spike, spike-online.com. Thanks for joining us again, Brendan. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Dance all day long. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. A lot of good news, relatively speaking, over the last several days in terms of the recovery from the lockdown periods. And boy, uh, as more information comes out on the science, as we've been mentioning all morning, the World Health Organization announcing that the transmission from asymptomatic COVID-19 infected individuals is very rare, uh, undermining the argument for continued lockdowns, frankly, undermining the argument for lots of things, including masks and social distancing, much less playgrounds that are shuttered and pools that are closed and the like. But we've done what we've done, and now we need to climb back from the damage that's been inflicted best we can. What we saw is still just a befuddling number in terms of the May jobs report, two and a half million jobs to the plus, as opposed to the seven to nine million jobs lost that was projected. And then, of course, the market reaction over the last several days into today to the positive as well. I mean, 
you have just a, still a relatively small fraction of the economy up and running, particularly in big blue states, and yet uh, we're not that far off from from the highs pre-pandemic, uh, all things considered. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Christopher Whalen, investment banker and chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, LLC, author of Ford Men, From Inspiration to Enterprise, and Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream. Uh, boy, that last title couldn't be more appropriate for a discussion here. Christopher Whalen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. I don't uh, know about the, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know about, about uh, inflation, but in terms of inflated with uh, uh, Fed uh, facilities being set up and fiscal, quote unquote, stimuli, uh, I don't know how much more inflated we can, we can possibly get, Christopher. Well, that's true. We have both inflation and deflation at the same time. It is possible. Uh, And the central banks make things worse by trying to help. You'll notice the huge swings in prices that we see now in markets. That's not normal. That's because the central banks are creating all of this credit, pushing it into the markets, and whoosh, they go back up. But there's no connection between, say, this quarter's earnings and what you see in stocks. You got to keep that in mind. This is pure momentum. Well, but it, but but it, it seems to me. I mean, a lot of people have argued. Get your take on it. That what you have is Jerome Powell saying uh, we are going to protect the investor class. You can have confidence. We've got seven trillion dollars in liquidity, and I haven't even come close to deploying all the tools that I have at my disposal. And we have the tools to make sure that we smooth out the in-between from the lockdown to full, a fully operational American economy? Well, look, I think Powell is doing what he's supposed to do. You know, he's trying to protect the financial infrastructure, the payments and everything else. But that's not where the problem is this time. That was 2008. This time we have destroyed the livelihoods of lots of working people. And these are not people who own homes necessarily or have big credit profiles that you're going to read about in the Wall Street Journal. These are just normal business people that we've destroyed uh, because of the lockdown and everything else you were just discussing. So, you know, it's a very different situation. It's closer to the 1930s in terms of the dislocation of people. Uh, But the institutions are okay. I will say, though, that the banks don't have a problem today, but investors do. Bond investors, uh, REITs, which buy real estate, they buy buildings. you got Sam Zell there in Chicago. These guys are in a bad way because an asset class that a year ago was considered you know, premium blue chip is now in the dumper. Uh, think about airplanes. Think about ships. All of these assets that were insured and maintained and thought to be really investment-grade kind of things, they're, they're now turned upside down. So the world has got some serious issues to work through. And as you said, the WHO has just confirmed that we made a terrible mistake with the lockdown. And there is nobody in New York, I'll tell you that, that wants to have that conversation this morning. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I bet. You know, remember the hospital ship? Remember the, the hospital in Central Park that I ride by every morning when I get out on my bike? Uh uh None of that was necessary. When we come back with Christopher Whalen, I want to uh, get perspective on the year-over-year Chapter 11 filings in May, the 48% increase specifically. More with Christopher Whalen right after this.
seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Christopher Whalen talking commercial real estate in a post-COVID-19 world. And I wanted to advance from there and uh, get your perspective on the 48% increase in Chapter 11 bankruptcy filings, May 2020 over May 2019. So, you know, we're far from out of the woods with respect to the economy recovering, even if the stock market has in the short term. I I wonder what your handle is on when you think we'll know how low the depths will be. Will it be by the first week of July after we've seen what June brings with respect to the phased-in reopenings? Well, June is a month for tax payments in most cities. That's mostly a quarterly exercise. So whether you're talking about individuals or businesses or landlords, those payments are down dramatically. The Fed can help by lending money to municipalities short-term, but the long-term hit that they're going to take in terms of revenue sales taxes from hospitality and entertainment and all that. Look at New York. The entire entertainment industry is closed. And until we get rid of this nonsense with the masks and the social distancing, which clearly was not necessary, this part of the economy is on hold. And these institutions will fail. You know, we're a big supporter of American Ballet Theater, 100 years old, one of the great companies in the world. They may fail simply because they can't work. You know, society is based upon density. New York was built by Dutch people to pack as many people in as you could because they wanted to do business. Shorto's great book about New York tells you this story, and yet here we are with all this infrastructure, and we're talking about working at home permanently. Well, that's that's that you should have known that was you should have known that was coming you, because of the Dutch. I mean, at first it was tulip mania in the 1600s, and now fast forward 400 years, and you have COVID-19 uh, no, mania. No, no. No, the Dutch were smart enough I'm to kidding. sell New York to the British. Yeah, that's, well, that's right. That's true. Fair enough. And they stayed here and did business, and they said, here, you take care of it. I, I want to go back to uh, what you mentioned before with respect to real, invas- real estate investment trusts and how much of a bloodletting you think is going to occur in commercial real estate. Because, of course, that is a, a huge sector in big, urban, dense cities like New York and Chicago and L.A. We don't really have good comparisons. The last time we had a problem in commercial real estate was the early and mid-1990s, and that came about because of a lot of lending. It was connected with the oil bust in Texas in the late 70s. We have an oil bust today in shale. So all the communities where you saw building and hotels and short-term housing for workers, that's all stopped. When you think about the valuation for those properties, it's obviously fallen. With the big cities, you have a different problem, which is office space and rental apartments and all of this, which have been depopulated. People have just left. I mean, New York is empty. I ride my bike around the city. Aside from the fact that everything's boarded up, we also just don't have the kids. We don't have a lot of the short-term workers who all went home. A lot of the people I know from the arts, they just literally went home to live with mom and dad because they don't have jobs. So the lifeblood of the city is commerce. It's people out doing things, it's tourism, everything else, and that's not going to come back until we really clarify what we need to do and what we don't need to do in terms of the coronavirus. There was an estimate a few weeks back that uh, Manhattan saw a 25% decrease in its population. 
I think that's probably right. There's no street traffic. The automobile traffic's up a bit, but there's nobody on the streets. Um, and, you know, I live on Central Park. We're usually inundated with tourists this time of year. And there are people out there selling them pony rides and beverages and everything else. None of that. So you asked me before about a number. We published something in my blog this week. We tried to size the commercial real estate mess. And my guess is we've got $5 trillion worth of assets tied to commercial real estate in this country. It's about half the size of residential mortgages. And my guess is we could take 10% losses over five years. So, you know, that's a lot of money. That's $100 billion a year in write-downs. The other thing you've got to think about is that this is not just, you know, the banks are the least of it because the banks hold the best kind of paper in portfolio when it comes to commercial lending. But the REITs and the bond investors, there was a huge surge in issuance in what we call commercial mortgage-backed securities. And those are kind of opaque. Nobody knows about them. You can't find prices in the public domain. You need a Bloomberg terminal, frankly. I think that the losses there are going to be kind of quiet, but there's going to be hits to employment. There's going to be a lot of hits to investors, you know, insurance companies, pension funds. They all loved investing in buildings. They all loved investing in planes. They thought it was safe. And now we've turned the whole world on its head. And the way that we're going to backdoor bail out uh, some of those institutions you mentioned is through uh, facilities that the Fed set up. You can finance them in the short term, but if they don't have tax revenues, they're going to have to cut back on costs. And that means a reduction in services. You guys have already been living through that in Chicago. You're going to see more because the federal government can't make this better. They can give you financing, but the Fed is not in the business of grants, and they're not in the business of restructuring. That takes us back to the 1930s, to the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which I think is something a lot of politicians ought to refresh their understanding of, because that's what you need. George you know? Mason, law professor uh, Tom Vitanian uh, argues for exactly that. Oh, yeah. No, Tom is a good friend. He's right on target, and he knows the history. See, in the 30s, you had two buckets, and I'll just talk about banks briefly. You had banks that could make it. They went to the FDIC. They got insurance, and they went through a process, and when it came out, they were okay. Everybody else went to Jesse Jones and the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, and they restructured them. They literally tore them apart, put them back together, sold assets, did everything they had to do. The interesting thing is it worked. It bought time. And this is what really troubles me about today is that the whipsaw that we see from all the central bank action trying to help is actually causing more damage than you need. Because look at where stocks were two months ago. Look at where they are now. What's the valuation given the volatility we see? Who knows? Why on earth do we have fair value accounting if we're going to have get whipsawed this way every year or two? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't help me as an analyst understand what's going on, right? So I think that we live in a time when we've got a lot going on in less and less time, a lot more volatility. And so you've got to feel for our public officials because what are they supposed to do? They get hit with this stuff and they've got to make a decision. They were told to lock down. Well, that was wrong. You know, we followed the communist Chinese as our example. That's great. <laughs> <clears throat> That's the definitive line on it right there. We followed the Chinese communists. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Christopher Whalen, he's an investment banker and chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, LLC, author of Ford Men, From Inspiration to Enterprise and Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream. He's also editor for the Institutional Risk Analyst. Christopher Whalen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you.
listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, in advance of uh, top of the next hour, when I tackle what Michael Wilbon had to say about Drew Brees. Uh, this from uh, one of my favorite coaches in organized sports, Dabo Sweeney, the uh, national championship winning Clemson football coach. He um, posted a response to uh, claims that were made about his about Football Matters T-shirt. Football Matters is the moniker on his T-shirt. And also a one-time use a couple of years ago of the N-word in the Tigers program, not by him, but by an assistant coach. Uh, saying that um, there are two, in particular, two words I don't want to hear, and I will absolutely call you out. One is the N-word. The other is GD. I would fire a coach immediately, called a player an N-word, no questions asked. That did not happen, absolutely did not happen. Um, I mean, this is allegedly happened in 2017 practice, and we're talking about it three years later. It's not even worth discussing on the merits, frankly. And uh, Sweeney on the whole football matters, he goes uh, a lot further than I would. But Dabo says, I wholeheartedly support Black Lives Matter. In fact, I don't quite think that's adequate enough. I think black lives significantly and equally matter. To me, black lives matter. just like, hey, we matter, too. I think black lives significantly and equally matter. Well, I agree with that. I just I, I hold support black lives matter. Look, everyone is it is so simple. Everyone is equal in the eyes of God and should be equal under the law you know, whatever the name you come up with for your group or whoever said, I'm, I'm more for your equality than you are or than the next guy is. The whole thing is so silly, equal in the eyes of God, equal before the law. And that's what the Constitution and the, de- the founding documents, the Declaration ultimately guarantee, isn't it? You know, this is this banal conversation has been going on for, well, generations in part, but um it seems more tedious and unimportant in the last few years because of the nature of those who are given profile and platform. But uh, Dabo isn't one of them. This is four years ago now when he was asked about the kneel downs and the protesting. Four years ago and not four, four years later, what are we talking about? A lot of the same thing in sports. Uh, it's really a bit depressing, but um, Dabo uh says uh, we got a sin problem in this country. That's what we got. There's thousands of perfect traffic stops, a lot of good men, a lot of good women, uh, but those don't get the stories. But there's some bad ones, too. There's some criminals that wear badges. Guess what? There's some criminals that work in the media. There's some criminals that are football coaches. There's some criminals that are politicians. There are criminals that work in churches. I think we have a sin problem in the world. That's what I think. It's so easy to say we have a race problem. It's so easy. Oh, we got a sin problem. That's just my opinion. That's Dabo's opinion. And I think the answer to our problems is um, exactly where they were for Martin Luther King when he changed the world. Love, peace, education, tolerance of others, Jesus. That's what I think. It's funny. The answers don't change, do they? Some just refuse to accept them as the truth. This is Dan Pride. 
fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, ignorance and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, we haven't had a chance to do this segment in a while, but uh, the NFL has given us the occasion. And uh, that's uh, not only what Drew Brees said, the firestorm it created, the apology he offered, not only the uh, apology that Roger Goodell, the oleaginous NFL commissioner offered, which is uh, we were wrong for not listening to NFL players earlier with respect to, you know, kneeling for the anthem, kneeling before the flag, the whole Colin Kaepernick saga that it's it's four years ago now. But anyway, this is all of the hand wringing that occurred over the weekend after the Drew Brees and everybody in the, in the sports world weighed in, but not only all that, but uh, Michael Wilbon, who uh, actually I have a lot in common with. He's a Chicago native. Me too. He went to Northwestern. Me too. He is a member at Olympia Fields Country Club in suburban Chicago. Me too. And Michael Wilbon had a bit of a different take. He wasn't beating up Drew Brees too much. He was just uh, putting it in context from his perspective about what Drew Brees and 85 to 90% of white people in America, he would guesstimate, don't understand. And I don't want this to land all on Drew Brees. I, I believe the apology. I believe it was as sincere and as heartfelt as he could possibly be. And it reflects that. That's not my point today. And I'm angry today, Tony, because even Drew Brees and his apology, he doesn't address what it was that ticked off so many people, including me, which is essentially the questioning of the patriotism of anybody, and let's say the anybody in this case is black folks, who want to take a knee and have protests during the anthem when the flag is raised at sporting events. Drew Brees, and here's why this, the conversation is important. Drew Brees ain't the only one who feels this way. I'm going to say, this is my estimation, 80 to 90% of white Americans feel that taking a knee is disrespectful of the flag and is somehow is at odds with what their forefathers did, as if our forefathers weren't there dying on the same battlefields, which angers black folks, angers me. I don't think Drew Brees gets that at all. And so when he says he didn't get it, I believe him. He didn't get it, and he doesn't get it. But he's like, again, 85% of Americans or more, white Americans, they they don't connect with what we're talking about. People, 10 people can look at the American flag, all can be patriotic and all feel differently about the specifics of what that flag represents. Because Drew Brees' granddaddies came back home, perhaps to a local parade. My uncles and dad came back home to say, get on the back of the bus. No, you can't live in this neighborhood. No, you can't try on the clothes in this department store. And they're all veterans. They all sacrificed and served this nation. Drew Brees still doesn't get that. At least the statement doesn't reflect that to me. And 90% of white Americans don't get where we're coming from on this issue. Hmm. A lot there from Michael Wilbon. 
Uh, that's what was on. Pardon the interruption of the show he does with Tony, Tony Kornheiser and ESPN. Yeah, that's one approach you can take. First of all, it is uh, very presumptuous to suggest that all veterans came back to uh, parades. Very dismissive. Uh, we understand how badly veterans were treated in this country. Vietnam veterans were treated in this country of all races. Michael Wilbon's relatives, were, did they come back and have to endure the indignity and oppression of Jim Crow? Yeah, and that's terrible. But I think the point uh, here there is you don't look at the flag and say this is a perfect nation and we have uh, no black marks in our history. We have never seen uh, or had to bear witness to man's inhumanity to man. Of course, that's not true. Does that mean that um, people should um, not comment or only be allowed to agree when multimillion dollar athletes who have benefited from all that America is and has become just in Michael Wilbon's lifetime. That's the, that's all they're allowed to do. Otherwise, they don't get it. There's perhaps there's some things that Michael Wilbon doesn't get. As I said, we went to the same college. We belong to the same country club. He's had a great career, very successful. The America Michael Wilbon has lived in in his adult life is very different than the America that his ancestors lived in. And he seems a little reticent to acknowledge that. And there's different perspectives and different approaches one can take with respect to the ignominious periods of American history, the terrible things that we've done to one another. And it's not just with respect to black Americans, but obviously they're at the top of the list between slavery and Jim Crow. I uh, go back to this uh, op-ed from last year, uh, just in advance of uh, celebration of America's birthday. And no, not not the 1619 Project date, the actual date. But uh, just before uh, July 4th last year, a Tuskegee Airman, Harry Stewart, turned 95 on July 4th. Is his birthday, same as America's birthday. And Tuskegee Airman, World War II veteran. On Easter Sunday, 1945, he wrote, I shot down three long nose uh, 190s, the best piston fighters in the Luftwaffe inventory. That action resulted in my receiving the Distinguished Flying Cross. I was thankful that my country had given me the opportunity to fly and fight, and all these years later, I'm proud that I contributed to the cause. We called it winning the double V, victory against totalitarianism abroad and institutional racism at home. Just as, or excuse, excuse me, he writes, July 4th is my birthday, but I celebrate my country's birthday too. America was not perfect in the 1940s, and it's not perfect today, yet I fought for it then, and I would do so again. So um, does uh, Harry Stewart have standing to comment on institutional racism, <laughs> fighter pilot from World War II, Tuskegee Airmen, and his perspective on America's imperfections, and I don't mean to gloss over the oppression with a euphemism, but those are his words. Yeah. I mean, it just seems that um, Wilbon, like so many, uh, is... Um, you know, fallen into the trap of no matter how successful, uh, no matter how much change has occurred between the time Harry Stewart was flying for the United States, between the civil rights movement of the 60s and present, between 45 and present, between the civil rights movement and present, 
just don't want to get out of that dynamic that there is um, uh, a, a tribute to be paid, an apology to be had, uh, contrition required for people who had nothing to do with those darkest periods in American history. So they invent this notion that uh, you're the beneficiary of uh, legacy privilege as a way to continue to shame and demand deference to Colin Kaepernick, who is an ignorant demagogue. He's a buffoon. And we're supposed to apologize and defer to him the way that Roger Goodell has. I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, you want to protest? Do you want to kneel down during the anthem? You know, that's between you and your employer. I don't care what the context is. You know, obviously the public facing NFL is different than a, a corporate environment, but this is not, not a free speech issue. It's uh, what the NFL, the owners, the front offices, the players, what they figure out. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. But the, the, the kneeling down is, is disrespectful, uh, arguably. Um, but it's also just a look at me moment. It's so pathetic. It's so self-indulgent. Those uh, NFL players uh, doing so, starting with Colin Kaepernick, are no better than virtue signaling Democrat socialists in Emancipation Hall. So when it comes to the flag, you don't respect the flag because of uh, because America is without blame for uh, decisions that we have made as a collective people that hurt other people. For generations, for hundreds of years, no question. It's to say the, the, the founding principles, the ideas of how a free society should be organized, uh, what is recorded in our founding documents, those are things that transcend race, transcend uh, previous uh, iterations of barbarism committed by Americans on other Americans, and point the way forward for a more perfect union, to borrow a phrase from Lincoln. So I guess that's the decision you have to make. You can uh, take the approach of a Tuskegee Airman Harry Stewart, or you can sort of posture the anger of Michael Wilbon. This is Dan Proft. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show on tuesday i uh, love last week employees walked out of work at condado tacos an Ohio-based chain, after being asked to fulfill an order for Ohio Highway Patrol officers in the midst of protests. Immediately, I just didn't feel comfortable making that order, said one employee. They and their co-workers were told that not participating in the order was fine and no one would lose their jobs for choosing not to fulfill it. Last week, Wednesday, employees at a Philadelphia sandwich shop, DeBruno Brothers, spoke out against serving the police. A location of DeBruno Brothers had posted a sign and its boarded up window earlier in the week offering free lunch and drinks to all on-duty officers. In an open letter condemning the giveaway, employees explained that DeBruno Brothers had also exempted police from wearing masks inside the business. Oh, the horrors. Gave them other preferential treatment. 
By Thursday, the company apologized, announced it would revoke the free meal policy, saying in a statement, we appreciate our employees and community for encouraging dialogue and growth. Is it growth? Josie Baker, co-owner of The Mill in San Francisco, says while no staff member is required to engage in a customer interaction that makes them feel unsafe, there's that word, the reality is we hardly receive any police officers as customers, so a policy refusing to serve them is more of a symbolic gesture, but it's important because it's uh, necessary, especially from people with white privilege, said Josie Baker, and um, they're focusing their efforts on donating to bail funds and local organizations doing anti-racist work. Is a bail fund anti-racism? For more on this sort of signaling and uh, purging and uh, application of the scarlet P to the uniforms of police officers across the nation, pleased to be joined again by Casey Chalk. He's a columnist for the American Conservative, Crisis Magazine, and the new Oxford Review. Casey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So, uh, Casey, uh, that's a sort of uh, signaling from restaurants in opposition to the police. That is perfect fodder for uh, so being a, a social media hero, isn't it? <laughs> and I have talked about that in a recent article at The Federalist, how there is a trend, certainly amongst younger Americans, for viewing social media activism as a legitimate form of civic protest. Maybe it'd be better to say the preferred means of you know, legitimate protest and uh, civic participation. I think it is legitimate, but it's become, the, I think, the primary means for many people. They use social media in order to virtue signal regarding the late, whatever the latest political fad is and, and neglect the much more important and more difficult forms of civic responsibility. You know, whether, that's, whether that's just going to work or also you know, volunteering in the community, knowing your neighbors, being involved in local municipal organizations. Yeah, but Casey, why why do I have to participate in one of these uh, platoons of democracy when I, I change my profile photo? I'm down. I'm good. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, like I guess even in the, I think even members of the left can, can recognize the ridiculousness of this, as evidenced by the Washington Post columnist Karen Atai. She talked about her frustration with all of these people who, in their desire to demonstrate their solidarity with Black Lives Matter and the African-American community across the nation, changing their Facebook profile somehow equals a robust form of civic activism. It's sort of a pernicious influence, isn't it? I mean, not just not social media, which is sort of value neutral. It's just a communication channel. But those uh, who use that channel for the purpose you're describing, and it has uh, a viral impact within their peer circles. You sort of describe this uh, uh, going back to your coaching days in that piece in The Federalist. Yes. And it also gets in, you know, to a, a topic that I discussed in another article in the American Conservative this past weekend on this phrase that is you often hear it. It's uh, called the tyranny of the majority. Right. So in the, it's often cited Alexis de Tocqueville, a French 19th century statesman is the one who originated it. Well, he's the one who popularized it more than anyone else. It was used by the founding fathers, people like Adams and Jefferson and Edmund Burke. But it's often used sort of like as this weapon whenever a majority of people believe something and then impose that belief on others. And that's not really a fair reading of Tocqueville or the founding fathers on this idea of the tyranny majority. And actually, a lot of people forget that he talks about two different kinds, right? One is one has to do with political institutions, right? So the fear that if the legislature of the United States 
has complete control over the policy, then yeah, it will be whatever the majority of people believe will be forced upon the entire electorate or all citizens. Well, but but what we have going on here in many respects is a tyranny of of insular minorities. Maybe uh, you can <laughs> solidarity and marginality your way to a majority, but you don't need to. I mean, uh, you know, you look at the survey data on uh, black American support for their local police department, and it's always the majority. I mean, it's uh, I haven't seen any uh, in any community where the polling data is under a majority of black Americans support their police department. and In fact, want more police, just like uh, most white Americans do, because they want to, you know, that the, their safety to be prime, the primacy in terms of what they get from their government. And yet that's not what you're hearing in terms of the uh, disband and defund police departments. No, I, I suppose it has a lot to do with you know whoever screens the loudest is going to be the one that's going to you know get get the popular memes and be spread on social media and even mainstream media, right? And I don't know, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse if you've talked a lot about the Jacob Fry incident, you know, the mayor of yeah, Minneapolis. Right, right. But I think I think that this is a perfect example of what you talk about with these insular uh, communities where there is like there's a tyranny of majority maybe on a more you know local level, right? So. He actually grew up not far from me uh, here in Northern Virginia. Um, some of my friends from high school competed against him in track because he was a very good track athlete. And in one sense, like, I actually very much sympathize with this guy. I don't agree with him. He's, uh, he's liberal, and so he promotes a lot of liberal ideas that I disagree with. But I at least admire the fact that he, is, he seems like he's a fairly principled man, and he, he's been, he's a, uh, his professional background is as a civil rights attorney, right? So he, I think he's done the last several years. He's tried everything as a – liberal Democrat working within yeah. political institutions yeah. to right and but yet that's not that's not good enough no well I mean he, here's the thing about him okay when he starts out at that uh, rally and he's talking about his brokenness you know that's the problem with the white leftists it's always about them and it's about managing other people's problems rather than conferring agency and supporting the idea that every individual has agency and is due the respective agency. And so, you know, so it turns out Josh Fry has to learn the hard way. Oh, that you may think you're on their side, but they don't think you're on their side because the policies that people like you have been advancing for the last 50 years in urban centers have been catastrophic. So, hey, uh, uh, Fry, you know, go pound sand if you're not going to give us what we want right now, because, oh, by the way, you are part of the people. You're part of the group of people who have advanced this notion that we have a claim. The legitimacy of our claim is based on our identity. You've advanced that. So now we're making a claim that you don't agree with where we're just going to roll right over you like we like you suggested we do when it was some other target beside you. Yeah. And. I actually um, I did a little research on him, uh, and there's a very interesting interview he did a couple years ago with a Jewish media outlet that's local called the Twin Cities uh, Jew Folk, where he says – I mean the irony here is just amazing. He says there's often a deviation of strategy in getting to their meaning, like political policies. We need to stop villainizing one another over slight differences of strategy and policy. You want to disagree? Go for it. That's great. But the villainizing and the personal attacks, they are counterproductive and will have no place in my administration. Casey Chaw, columnist for the American Conservative, Crisis Magazine, and the new Oxford Review. Casey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Take care. You're 
listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We spoke earlier in the show with Dr. John Lee, retired pathologist, pathology professor, consultant to the National Health Service in Britain, about uh, the uh, pronouncement from the WHO yesterday that uh, the transmission of COVID-19, not what they thought, at least with respect to transmission from asymptomatic COVID-19 infected, that it is very rare was the phrase that was used, very rare. That has significant implications if it turns out to be true. And even though the WHO was wrong in the beginning, and one should be skeptical of all such pronouncements, science ongoing here, but you would think after five months of having an additional five months to study how the virus actually operates in practice, that the conclusions being drawn by experts like the emerging, uh, emerging, emerging disease uh, expert and point person at WHO would be more accurate. We'll see. But if it is true, if that is verified and observed in the real world, then it has real implications for perhaps exiting lockdown more quickly than the phases are currently organized in many states. And that has real implications in terms of figuring out what post-COVID-19 America will look like. For more on that topic, we're pleased to be joined by Frank Diana, global consultant with Tata Consulting Consultancy Services, working with leading companies on how to prepare for the future with a focus on enabling the enterprise of 2020. Frank, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. Um, so, um, uh, you know, whether that this comes more quickly than not, based on uh, our learning new things about the virus, as I was mentioning with the WHO news yesterday, one of the things that uh, you've written I thought was interesting or you've raised in terms of post-COVID-19 America with respect to the workforce that has not been discussed a lot is the idea of retired workers coming in off the sidelines during the height of the pandemic and the lockdowns and uh, providing a real value add. And maybe that's going to change the composition of the workforce for the foreseeable future. Yeah, that was a very interesting uh, phenomenon that I saw while I was looking at where work might be going. Clearly, you know, technology skills that are in retired workers or nurses and doctors, the things I wrote about, uh, that phenomenon has obviously helped in this crisis, but uh, kind of institutionalizing that and maybe bringing back some of those skills or at least having the ability to rapidly bring them back if necessary seems like a, a great path forward. Um, and, you know, if you combine that with some of the demographics of our world where, where society is indeed aging, it does introduce an interesting uh, potential path uh, as we, we look for workers. Uh, aging or retired workers may be a great answer there. Well, and, and you know, so it's a combination of good news, bad news. So that the, the good news is maybe retirees who have the wherewithal uh, can add some value and uh, derive some value by being back in in the game, as it were. But then on the other side, you still have uh, 20 million plus people collecting unemployment benefits, uh, the plurality of whom are workers who make less than $40,000 a year that may be returning to a landscape in the next couple of months that doesn't provide job opportunities in their sectors that they once enjoyed. And this creates the potential for persistent uh, high unemployment among lower skilled workers. Yeah, yeah it's clearly a, a downside to all this is not just that in terms of 
you know, employers finding different ways or other ways to get work done. But, you know, maybe the acceleration towards automation uh, is built on the back of this crisis is already happening at some level. Who knows when that would have played out. Um, but if we do automate on a more rapid scale, let, let's say we automate more of those jobs that require close proximity to people, um, then, then to your point, that just exacerbates the, the unemployment problem. And uh, uh, you also uh, uh, opine on the on what's going to happen. You know, just the the composition of cities, uh, cities versus suburban, exurban, and rural areas. And what's your sense of how the population distribution may change, and thus the character of these different uh, environments? You know, uh, where people live. Yeah, that, you know, that's also a really interesting piece of, of the story going forward. Is is the urbanization that many people were, were claiming was going to be dominant in the next 20 years, where we, in most of society we live in city centers, been reversed at some level because of the same issue in terms of proximity, density, and wanting to be around people like that. that the, that's one piece of the story is do people really want to be in cities. The other piece is, you know, if, if work, at least in the office setting, goes more remote, and Twitter and others have said they were going to go do that, then, you know, a global talent pool emerges where it doesn't matter where you live. You know, you, people have access to talent that they might not have access to in the past. And the Silicon Valley, you know, the, the rent structure in Silicon Valley collapses more and more people move out. Um, and so there's so many – that's the big thing about all these kinds of things. The, the tentacles, the, the ripple effect is, is amazing. And it's just interesting to watch all these dots connect. Uh, when we come, I, want, I want to pick it up there when we come back. Um, just talk a little bit more about uh, sort of – the inequality within cities and as well as more on the topic of how the population redistribution, if that comes to pass, may affect uh, capital formation and business location. More with Frank Diana, global consultant with Tata Consultancy Services right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And a good piece by uh, our friend Michael Petrelli, who is the president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, uh, on the unequal American city, this in the Wall Street Journal. And um, he looks at an updated review of the income inequality in uh, urban centers versus rural. Uh, it uh, has long been the case that uh, income inequality was far greater in rural counties than urban ones. A 2019 study uh, by uh, sociologists and, demogra- uh, and demographers at Penn State and Cornell Many rural areas across the Mississippi, Delta, Appalachia, Rio Grande, Mid-South have been dependent on resource-based industries such as mining, agriculture, non-durable manufacture. Employment in these sectors has often been characterized by relatively few well-paying jobs occupied by the owners and managers of capital and a plethora of low-wage, low-skill production jobs. Uh, what's happened recently, though, is income inequality levels have converged. It's not that rural areas have necessarily become more equal. It's that there is a increase in income inequality uh, that's been particularly dramatic, according to these researchers, among residents of large central metropolitan counties. Uh, it, it, with now income inequality being virtually identical in most of the rural counties and the large central metropolitan ones, same thing, a hollowing out of middle income families, uh, as we've seen in Chicago 
perhaps most uh, notably, but certainly not limited there. I mean, the, the greatest, I think the, Gini, the, the, the highest Gini coefficient for any urban center in the country is the left-wing bastion of San Francisco. And so what does that mean for the future of uh, not just industry, but social cohesion uh, for uh, that conversation? We're rejoined by Frank Diana, global consultant with Tata Consultancy Services, working with leading companies on how to prepare for the future with a focus on enabling the enterprise of 2020. Frank, uh, thanks for rejoining us. And and so just about that, about the the concern about uh, income inequality, uh, not for necessarily political reasons, although there's a a component of that, but for social cohesion reasons. I mean, in other words, uh, you have people that are uh, uh, insulated from terrible public policy because they have uh, a lot of wealth and you have people that are the beneficiaries of transfer payments or, you know, living paycheck to paycheck at best and not a lot in between and how that will change the, uh, the nature of living in a big city. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really one of the, the key problems for society in the next decade, it, it was already before this virus took hold that there was many economists, I believe by 2030, this, this specific situation gets uh, really bad. And to your point, this social unrest then follow. And we're seeing some signs of that, obviously. Uh, but, you know, is, is technology both a problem and a solution here? If, if you make more people available to uh, work where, re- where location doesn't matter, as I mentioned before, you, you can work anywhere um, and, and get access to jobs that you might not have had access to before. And it's, this could also be the low-skill work as well. I mean, I, I use examples like, uh, you know, delivery is obviously going to be growing as more and more people order online, and that might be a phenomenon that stays with us. Uh, and so there's drone delivery, uh, there's drone swarms that require operators that can do those things virtually from their homes. Uh, they're just examples of ways that maybe there's more participation in the workforce as we move forward if technology enables it. You know, there's always the story where it, it, it takes jobs away, but there's a number of things going on there. What, what about uh, the prospect of uh, sort of new centers of commerce uh, that are exurban, if not rural, because it will be because people can telework, as you're describing and as people were doing during the, the pandemic, the height of it, the height of the lockdown, uh, usually a lower cost of everything, uh, all the inputs to a, a, a to a business in uh, exurban or rural areas, as well as a lower price point in terms of cost of living for employees. Now, you trade off, of course, things like transportation infrastructure, but perhaps uh, businesses are willing to make those trade-offs to avoid all of the uh, the negatives associated with being in a dense urban center. Yeah, and no, I completely agree with you. I mean, that, that's a path forward. It, it puts some onus on, on these uh, communities to actually entice folks to, to be there. Uh, new, new incentive structures, if you will. But but I think it does get to exactly what you're saying. It really kind of shifts the commerce uh, appeal completely, and and maybe gets to some of these issues at the same time. So interestingly, you know, maybe this this bad crisis turns out to be driving some positive outcomes when we're all said and done. Because these things were going to happen. I just think we're accelerating some of it. Um, so other trend lines that were uh, other trends that were in, in process, trend lines you've been watching that are being accelerated by the, the response to the pandemic. Uh, what about on the, the uh, score of immigration? And, you know, do we have enough workers in, in uh, particular sectors, both high-skilled and low-skilled, to, uh, to, to, to advance an American recovery and continue to feed the, the, uh, the engine here 
uh, as we need. I saw last week that the U.K. was uh, open to the possibility of allowing as many as five million Hong Kongans to emigrate to the U.K. Um, it doesn't seem like there's as much popularity for immigration, uh, emigration to America at this time as uh, as maybe in Europe. Yeah, the immigration story as we move forward is going to get even more interesting than it's been, especially here in the U.S. But to your point, um, there's always there was already a problem with a fall in the working age population, and if that continued, obviously with an aging population kind of side by side with that, we we were going to have issues in terms of city revenues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but let alone getting the work done. So we've seen with the essential workers in this crisis, whether it's meatpacking plants or in the fields themselves, that immigration or immigrants were a big piece of that equation. So what happens if strict immigration policies prevent those workers from from coming back to the fields or the meatpacking plants? That's such an essential piece of our food supply chain. Uh, Does it cause us even bigger issues there? Um, so, again, uh, these are great, great points yeah. to bring up in terms of some of the issues. Oh, the flip side, too, could be, uh, well, wait, so so we have less people coming here illegally because of everything that's happened at present. And so this is the opportune time to advance a guest worker program for those specific sectors that really uh, rely on it and and formalize something that had been informal and, frankly, illegal. Uh, and maybe this is a way, this is an opportune time to, to, to pursue a remedy to uh, the, the dual problems we're both describing. Yeah, that, I mean, that would, again, serve as an accelerant to something that's, that, that's necessary, right? Do it the right way um, and solve a problem while you're doing it. He is Frank Diana. He is a global consultant with Tata Consultancy Services, working with leading companies on how to prepare for the future with a focus on enabling the enterprise of 2020. Frank, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and we uh, close this installment with uh, Glenn Lowry. Mentioned him last week, uh, economics professor, Brown University. Uh, I've had a chance to get to know him a little bit. He is outstanding, Sup- really superior intellect. And, uh, oh man, this is good. The president of Brown University, one Christina Paxson, sent a missive out about uh, all of the civil unrest and police brutality matters and so forth. Uh, the letter begins that uh, uh, it was she and, and the staff and faculty that uh, co-signed the letter. We write to you today as leaders of this university to express first deep sadness, but also anger regarding the racist incidents that continue to cut short the lives of black people every day. The sadness comes from knowing that this is not a mere moment for our country. This is historical, lasting and persistent. Structures of power, deep-rooted histories of oppression, as well as prejudice, outright bigotry and hate directly and personally affect the lives of millions of people in this nation every minute and every hour. Black people continue to live in fear for themselves, their children and their communities, at times in fear of the very systems and structures that are supposed to be in place to ensure safety and justice. Well, Glenn Lowry, uh, who is black, responded I was disturbed by the letter from Brown senior administration. Uh, If there were only more academics like Glenn Lowry, 
This is so good. And he posted in City Journal. I wondered why such a proclamation was necessary. Either it affirmed platitudes to which we can all subscribe or more menacingly, it asserted controversial and arguable positions as though they were axiomatic certainties. It trafficked in the social justice warriors, pedantic language and sophomoric nostrums. It invoked race gratuitously and unreflectively at every turn. It often presumed what remains to be established. It often alighted pertinent differences between the many instances cited. I deeply resented the letter. And he goes on to add about the letter. I mean, every word that Larry wrote is worth mentioning. I'm just excerpting it. This is no reasoned ethical reflection. It is indoctrination, virtue signaling, and the transparent curring of favor with our charges. The roster of Brown's leaders, in quotes, who signed this manifesto in lockstep, remind me of a Soviet Politburo making some party-line declaration. I can only assume that the point here is to forestall any student protests by declaring the university to be on the right side of history. What I found most alarming, though, is that no voice was given to what one might have thought would be a university's principled intellectual contribution to the national debate at this critical moment, namely to affirm the primacy of reason over violence in calibrating our reactions to the supposed oppression. My bottom line, I'm offended by this letter. It frightens, saddens, and angers me. As I said, if only there were more academics in higher ed like Brown University economist Glenn Lowry. I'll tweet out uh, the whole piece at uh, at Dan Prof Show because you should check it out. Thank you for checking out the Dan Prof Show uh, today. And please join us again for tomorrow's edition. Appreciate it. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.